Hey everyone and welcome to Icons and Outlaws, your all-access backstage pass to the legends of the music world. I am your host, Jonathan Sayer. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Logan. And this is episode seven, The Beatles. All by Ills. The Beatles. So remember to stay to the end of the episode to listen to our version of the Beatles. Let it be that you can find on Spotify and our own curated Icons and Outlaws playlist. You can find everything about the show over at IconsAndOutlaws.com. And make sure to subscribe and tell your friends. Jeff. Yes, sir. What is your first memory of the Beatles? Uh, My mom playing A Hard Day's Night, that album. Okay. She would always sing like Love Me Do and and you know all those classic songs off there when I was a little kid when she was cleaning. That's she'd awesome. She'd be vacuuming and singing and blasting the Beatles. So that's how I kind of learned about them and was introduced to them. Yeah? Yeah. Logan, do you even know who the Beatles are? I know Ringo. <laughs> you know Ringo? Yeah, he's my favorite. He's the best Beatle. <laughs> so yes, today we're talking about the Beatles and uh yeah, I could say we're we're fans, right? Absolutely. At least appreciative of the uh the music that was made, you know. So we're going to be talking about it. I found a bunch of cool stuff I had no idea about. Yeah, I'm excited about this one. So in March of 1957, John Winston Lennon. Winston is his middle Winston, name? Winston, yeah. Huh. I think that's a pretty awesome middle name, actually. J.W. <laughs> J.W. Lennon. <laughs> Glad he didn't go by that. That'd be yeah, weird. Yeah, it would be. Well, he formed a skiffle group called the Quarrymen. Okay. Oh. Do you know what a skiffle group is? Um, is it like a, uh, like a, when a bunch of guys sit around and go, the whole time? No. no. That would be suck. acapella. Ah, yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> so no, Skiffle, it's a uh, kind of folk music with a blues or jazz flavor that was popular in the 1950s, played by a small group and often incorporating improvised instruments such as washboards oh, over nice. in the UK. So that's what they were doing back then. That's, that's what, cool. That's like everyday music back home here in West Virginia. <laughs> One string banjos, you know. You and play the a jug. washboard, yeah, and yeah, and <laughs> the you washboard. Play a washboard, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty good. Right? And the jug. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then they had that. What was that little rubber band thing they put there? About that. <laughs> oh, what is that thing called? Snoopy I mean, had one. That's remember? super popular right now. Yeah, like I know a little, Snoopy had like a little. Like a it's a, a mouth a mouth harp. Yes, mouth We should do one of our covers with one of those. Absolutely. Right? So on July 6th of 1957, uh, John Lennon met a guy named James. James? Okay? Yeah. Uh, his name was actually James Paul McCartney while playing at the Woolton Parish Church Fete, or a Fetus, whatever. So in Britain, uh, a Fetus are uh, traditional public festivals held outdoors and organized to raise funds for a charity. Oh. So they were hanging out of this thing, and that's when they actually met. So on February 6th of 1958, the young and up-and-coming uh, up guitarist George Harrison was invited to watch the group perform at Wilson Hall Garston in Liverpool over nice. in London. London. Foggy London. In London. He was soon brought in as a regular player. During this period, members continually joined and left the lineup, which we know as far as being in a band, that happens a lot. Mm. Finally, Lennon, McCartney, Harrison, and Stuart Sutcliffe, a classmate of John Lennon's at Liverpool Art College, emerged as the only constant members. Imagine if you're Stuart after all this time. You were like, hey, I was in the original lineup, and now I'm not. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely talk about Stuart here. Oh, all, right? all right. So one day, the members showed up to a gig wearing different colored shirts, so they decided to call themselves the Rainbows. Oh, okay. Yeah, they were the Rainbows first. Wow. In a talent show they did in 1959, they turned and called themselves Johnny and the Moondogs. 
I like that. That's pretty cool, actually. We should kind of take that for our future project. Johnny and the Moon Dogs. Yeah. Once again, changing their name to the Silver Beatles, they eventually decided on August 17th, 1960 on the moniker, The Beatles. Why did they choose The Beatles, Logan? Because um, they're super hardened bugs. Um, do you remember a little episode we did back, uh, I think it was our first episode, yeah. <laughs> our second episode, on Buddy Holly? Yeah. Ah, Remember that and talking about the Beatles? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. You <laughs> so they were huge fans of Buddy Holly and the Crickets, and as a way of emulating their heroes, they called themselves after an insect, right? No. Right? How many insects have been done at this point? So we have the Beatles. Yeah. Um, what else? Well, Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Right, but there, is there a... There's no cockroach band, right? I hope not. There probably is. Should we start that? The cockroaches? Well, yeah. There is Papa Roach. Oh, there is Papa Roach. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Is there ants? There's Adamant. Adamant. There's Alien Ant Farm. Alien Ant Farm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, what else? What were we missing? Oh, bees. Hey. There's no bees, like Bumblebee or Wasp. There's there the, is Wasp. There's wasp. The, there's the Bee Gees. There the Bee Gees? Yeah. Yeah. We could do this all day. I mean, like, <laughs> it's just amazing that they've covered everything. Is there a spider? There's, there's no spiders. There is. There's a group called Spider. It's it's S-P-V-D-E-R-S. That's Spivadur. That's spiders. That's Spivadur. Is it? Yeah. It, it's Spivadur. <laughs> Spivadur. Well, according to John Lennon, quote, it came in a vision. A man appear, appeared on a flaming pie and said unto them, from this day forward, you are the Beatles with an A. Thank you, Mr. Man, they said, thanking him. Now, that's from, from, El, uh, from Elton John, from John Lennon. That's, that's Ringo saying that, right? Uh, no, that was actually John Lennon said that. No, the guy who told them that they're going to be the Beatles. It was a, well, it could have been Ringo on a flaming pie. It's possible. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I wasn't there. So most of the accounts claim that Lennon's love of wordplay led them to adopt the A eventually, which I love this. Lennon would explain in a 1964 interview, quote, it was beat, B-E-A-T, like you play the beat on a drum, yeah. and Beatles, B-E-E-T-L-E-S, and when you said it, people thought of crawly things, and when you read it, it was beat music. And I've never Ooh, thought of that before when yeah. looking at the Beatles. I just thought they just wanted to be different, but it makes sense. So after Lennon died in 1980, George Harrison claimed that the uh, name came about differently in the Beatles anthology documentary. Is this the documentary you were talking about? No, it's Get Back. Oh, okay. On Disney Plus, by the way, everybody needs to watch. It's amazing. We're okay, not, we're not sponsored by Disney Plus, but not, not yet. But definitely, watch I wish night. we were. I can get yeah. my Mandalorian and Obi Wan for free. That's it. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> so Harrison claimed that the name The Beatles came from the 1953 Marlon Brando film The Wild One. In the film, Brando played a character called Johnny and was in a gang called The Beatles. Mm-hmm. This answer would also uh, would add up, uh, considering that the group also flirted with the name of Johnny and the Beatles, as well as Long John and the Silver Beatles. That is awesome. They went through a lot of different name ideas, so it's pretty cool. And, and the, to me, the best part is is that there really isn't one concerted answer. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like where did they come up with? I like the one about the beat. That is in the beat. Yeah, that one is pretty cool. Yeah. So there, there's probably a cornucopia of reasons why they did it. You know, they have like maybe they liked the Beatles and then they wanted to put beat in there, or not the Beatles, but the Buddy Holly, and then they wanted to put beat in there because you know of the beat part yeah. of it. You know, who knows? So their unof- uh, unofficial, unofficial manager Alan Williams arranged for them to perform in clubs on the uh, Reeperbahn in Hamburg, Germany. Now, I always envisioned earlier in their lives that the Beatles were good, wholesome fellas from over in the uk right yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were some motley crew well i don't know about that part but i mean okay so on august 16th 1960 mccartney invited a guy named pete best 
to become the group's permanent drummer after watching Best playing with uh, the Blackjacks in the Casbah Club. The Casbah Club was a cellar club operated by Best's mother Mona in West Derby, uh, Derby, Liverpool, where the Beatles had played and often visited. Okay, Logan, who said Rock the Casbah? Uh, rock the Casbah, that would be uh, the police. You suck. That wasn't I mean, thing in the police. Rock he's not as far off the spectrum as I thought he would be with that answer. Yeah, at least it didn't say like I don't know. It was Led Zeppelin. One of the original punk bands called the Clash. Yes, the Clash. The Clash. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Yeah. Oh. So they started in Hamburg, okay, by playing in the Indra and Kaiser Keller bars and the Top Ten Club. Mm. George, who was only seventeen years old, had actually lied about his age. And when this little fact was discovered, well, they deported him uh, back to uh, to the UK. Oh. Yeah. Oh boy. Well, Paul and Pete thought it was a good uh, good idea to start a small fire by lighting an unused condom in their living quarters while leaving it for more luxurious rooms. Dude, how cool is that? Even back in the 50s, the Beatles were like rock starring it up. Yeah. That's awesome. So arrested and charged for arson, they too were both deported. Lennon and Sutcliffe followed suit and returned to uh, Liverpool in December. While in Germany, they stayed in a small room with bunk beds. George Harrison admitted in the Beatles anthology that this made things especially awkward when he crawled under the sheets with a woman for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) What does he mean by that, Logan? Um, They were playing uh, uh, with uh, race cars um, and uh, little action figures. Yes. And and yeah, yeah, they were having a great time. Yes. They were a little fort. They were doing vroom vroom for sure. Yes. Yes. Got it. So Lennon, McCartney, and then drummer Pete Best actually applauded for him after the deed was done. Of course. Harrison joked, quote, at least they kept it quiet while I was doing it. <laughs> Again, I, I, I guess I always uh, had this misconceived notion that they were like good boys. Right. You know, and they didn't do anything wrong. I mean, obviously, later in life, they were, you know, doing I've lots seen, of drugs. I've seen so many, like, interviews from them, and they're just, like, always bad-mouthing each other, or Ringo ma- mainly. It's like, it's freaking Well, they've hilarious. got such, uh, that's the one thing I love about the British sense of humor. It is so dark and, and like... dry. It, yeah. It's dry yeah. and straight-laced, where they'll sit there, and, like, they'll be making a joke, and they'll just look at you and be like, your mom's a twat. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, and you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's, I don't know, I think it's hilarious. So they went back a second time and played the Top Ten Club for three months, Okay. Stuart Sutcliffe decided to remain in Germany to concentrate on painting and left the group during this time. Sutcliffe's departure led McCartney to switch from playing rhythm guitar to bass guitar. Okay? Mm-hmm. Which is pretty much what he played the, for the rest of his remainder of his career. Yeah. yeah. While they were playing at the top 10, they were recruited by singer Tony Sheridan to act as his backing band on a series of rec- uh, recordings for the German Polydor Records label, uh, label produced by famed BAM, uh, BAM band leader Bert Kampfert. Do you guys know who Burt Camford is? Do not. No. Strangers in the Night. Oh, that guy, huh? And Don Cushane. I thought that was Wayne Newton. He wrote the songs. He's the okay. band leader for those things. You know what I mean? He's the one that was out there doing all the those. The composer. Yeah, because he made, the, back then they used live bands for that stuff. That's cool. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. So Camford signed the group to its own Polydor contract at the first session in June 20, uh, 22nd of 1961. On October 31st, Polydor released the recording, My Bonnie, which made it into the German charts under uh, Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers. That's what they were known as then, Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers. Oh. Okay. Around 1962, My Bonnie was mentioned in a in Cashbox as the debut of a, quote, new rock and roll team, Tony Sheridan and the Beatles. And a few copies were also uh, pressed for U.S. disc jockeys. Uh, any idea what Cashbox is? Cashbox. We just talked about that. Cashbox. Yeah, that's what I said. Cashbox. It sounds no. familiar. Cashbox. No. 
Okay, so it's a cash box or a cash box. Uh, it's a, a music industry trade magazine published initially weekly from July 1942 to November 1996. Huh. Ten years after its dissolution, it was revived and continues as cash box magazine, an online magazine with weekly charts and occasional special print issues over in the UK. Really? So it was like the billboard for over there. Um, kind of. Kind of. Kind of or I, like I, a Rolling Stone. More of like a Rolling yeah. Stone, I would think, yeah. So the band's third stay in Hamburg was from April 13th May, uh, through May 31st in 1962 when they opened the Star Club. However, that stay was dampened when Astrid Kircher informed them upon their arrival of Suckless' death with a brain hemorrhage. Oh, no. Oh, Yeah, so the guy good. who stayed behind and, and didn't want to do it anymore, he had just passed away. And those are like, that's like an instant death, basically. Right? Oh, yeah, you're yeah. Right, yeah. So Astrid, a German photographer and friend of the Beatles, revealed that her fiancé and former Beatles bass player Stuart Sutcliffe had died. No one was more shocked than John Lennon, who reportedly broke out in a fit of hysterical laughter at the idea of losing his art school buddy. And from what I've read, that was kind of a turning point for, for John where it just broke him down. Yeah. Yeah, it really messed him up. So upon their return from Hamburg, the group was enthusiastically promoted by local promoter Sam Leach, who presented them for the next year and a half on various stages in Liverpool 49 times. So he was their new promoter, Sam Leach. Brian Epstein, no relation to a particular disgusting human being, took over as the group's manager in 1962 and led the Beatles' quest for a British recording uh, contract. All right, In one now-famous exchange, a senior DECA record, uh, Records A&R executive named Dick Rowe turned Epstein, uh, Epstein down flat and informed him that, quote, the DECA audition for guitar groups are on the way out, Mr. Epstein. You guys remember DECA? Mm. I'm going to refer back to uh, episode number two as well here. Let's see if Logan's got... Hold on, hold on, hold on. Ready? DECA? DECA Records. Oh, that's like a... That's a big-time record label, isn't it? I have no idea. I don't remember any of that. It sounds like it's like almost you like stands for something. Suck. What does DECA stand for? Do you do you are you here? <laughs> <laughs> like Buddy Holly was a long time ago. It in was Galaxy, Buddy far So far they were Buddy Holly's first record label that thought rock and roll was just a fad. Ah, that's right. So now not only have they turned down Buddy Holly, mm -hmm. and of course they worked with them on that imprint label or whatever, but now they're turning down the Beatles. Strike two, DECA. <laughs> DECA's just not doing good. Man. No. So Epstein eventually met with producer George Martin of EMI's Parlophone label. Mm -hmm. Martin expressed an interest in hearing the band in the studio, so he invited the band to London's Abbey Road Studios to audition on June 6th. Martin was particularly, particularly impressed by the band's demo recordings, but instantly liked them when they met. He concluded that they had raw musical talent, but said in later interviews that what made the difference for him that fateful day was their wit and humor in the studio. Like I said, every time you see them, they're kind of just bantering oh, back and yeah. forth, and right. they just seem to have like a, a really good uh, rapport with one another. You know, mm -hmm. it's cool to see that too, because yeah. you can actually see when there's disdain. Oh, you see it in that documentary. What the disdain, or yeah, oh, that's later on. Well, right? I brought up the one comment where like, so Ringo would show up first, you know, uh -huh. which because he probably had nothing to do, right? And he was sitting there, and he was like on the he was on uh, Paul McCartney's piano. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's playing that Octopus's Garden song that he wrote that's on Sgt. Pepper. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, he's playing the thing and blah, blah, blah. And then George Harrison comes in. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm just playing Octopus's Garden. And, you know, that song. <laughs> he's like, you know, that song I wrote. And the cameras are filming. And George is like, yeah, and walks away. <laughs> and then Paul and John show up and Yoko, of course, they all show up and they, they look over at Ringo. They're like, can we get started? 
Ringo's like, oh, okay. Like puts the, you know, yeah, you talked about that before. The like yeah. they just treated him like total dog. That crap. sucks. Dude, it's hilarious. Well, Martin privately suggested to Brian Epstein that the band use another drummer in the studio. So not a big fan of Pete Best over here. Okay. So Pete Best had some popularity and was considered attractive by many of the female fans out there. Ooh. They were like, ah, Pete Best. <laughs> Still, the three founding members had become increasingly unhappy with his popularity and personality. And from what I read, he kind of took the whole popularity they started getting. Because we're talking here in like, this is the, the 60s, the early 60s. So yeah. their popularity was starting to boom. Oh, yeah. And they, I guess he just, it went to his head. He became a pompous, arrogant guy. Guy, the guy, the guy. Hey, yeah, listen, the guy. and I know a little bit about that. I've been there. You yeah, know, yeah. you get a little notoriety and you start thinking, oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm the bee's knees. It's so hard to not swear on here. <laughs> look, at him, look at him looking at you too while you're explaining that. I was totally waiting for it. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm holding, holding back. So, um, and Epstein um, had become exasperated with his refusal to adapt, uh, adopt the uh, distinctive hairstyle as part of their unified look. So remember, they had that like the bowl cut, the little bowl cut. Yeah. And and Pete Best was like, I'm not doing it. You know, because he had this real pretty haircut, and of course the ladies loved him, so they didn't want to do the, what's it called, the mop, or yeah. whatever they called it. Yeah, the bowl cut, whatever. Yeah, bowl cut. So Epstein sacked Best on August 16th, 1962. Yikes. Lennon and McCartney immediately asked their friend Richard Starkey, the drummer from one of the top uh, Mersey, uh, Mersey Beat groups, um, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, to join the band. Unfortunately, Rory Storm did not want to release Starkey, but let him out of his contract, un unfortunately. So, um, oh, by the way, Richard Starkey would eventually be known as Ringo Starr. He chose Ringo because of the rings he wore, and it also had a cowboy feel to it. His drum solos were referred to as Star Time. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I would have stuck with Starkey because, you know, it sounds cool. He's yeah, star. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Burt Reynolds was actually in a uh, movie called Starkey, if I'm not mis mistaken. Was he I, Ringo? No, maybe <laughs> I just remember the movie because uh, I don't know what he was doing, but he actually like was going into a a, um, a meeting with like mob guys or something, and he wasn't allowed to have any weapons, so he shaved down some credit cards to make a blade on him, and he went in and used the credit cards to like cut everybody up. Sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. it was pretty awesome. Wow, yeah, what is this movie called? I think it's Starkey. Starkey. I want to say movie. It's late seventies, early eighties. This is back when you just like touch someone's chin and their neck broke. Yeah, yeah. That's you just Chuck look Norris. At no. What? Chuck yeah, Norris could look yeah. at somebody. Oh my God! For a second, I didn't. I thought you didn't know who Chuck Norris was. Of course I do. I was like, <laughs> come on, now. what? <laughs> All right. So the first, uh, the Beatles' first EMI session on June sixth did not yield any releasable recordings, but the September sessions produced the minor UK hit "Love Me Do," which peaked on the charts at number seventeen. You got you know that song, right? Love Me Do, yeah. I definitely know that song. Give me, a, give me a little hymn of that, buddy. Love Me Do Not. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard that song okay. in my life. Love, love me, do you know I love you? Yes, no. it's awesome. So the single reached the top of the U.S. singles chart more than 18 months later in May of 1964. This single was swiftly followed by their second release, "Please Please Me." Oh, they recorded their first album, also titled "Please Please Me," three months later. George Martin capitalized on the wild live energy the boys perfected in Hamburg and recorded the entire Please Please Me LP in less than 13 hours. Wait, what? 13 hours. Wow. Yes. And that's, also that's to, to credit that, they, they were like the first, I mean, other than like James Brown mm -hmm. and like Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis, mm -hmm. like they were one of the first like band formations to actually have a stage presence where like they weren't stiff. They were like, you know, 
dancing, and that's why all the girls went crazy. Yeah, they, they were, loved him. Yeah, they would do like the look, and energetic the, and, and stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this is kind of funny to me. So they saved Twist and Shout for uh, the last song. So the vocals wouldn't ruin John Lennon's vo- voice before the other songs were done. And if you listen to that song, you oh, can yeah. hear it. Like he's belting. He's it. very raspy, and he's yeah. come out, baby, now. You know yeah, what I mean? I know that one. So it's real, real whatever. So that LP had fourteen songs on it. Mm. 14 songs mm. in 13 hours. That's a song in less than an hour. Yeah. <laughs> That's math. <laughs> That's math. That is correct. Hey, I got one. <laughs> Luckily for them, though, the longest song in the album was only two minutes and 54 seconds long. The shortest was a minute and 47 seconds. So that's how you can kind of knock out. And listen, I'm not downgrading in anything that they did. Well, yeah, I'm saying like 13 hours, 14 songs. A lot of people think, holy crap. But, but that was if, normal back then. Yeah, but if, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If there were two and a half minute songs, it would be a little easier. We didn't have five minute, five finger death punch songs back then. <laughs> well, not only that, but they would walk in and it was, you recorded everything at one time. Right. So you had mics set up and then you hit record onto tape uh-huh. and... You know, if there was like a huge flub, they might go in and you can actually listen to some of those records and hear some things that aren't exactly on time. Well, I brought up the one, you know, with Sting where he hits the piano and yeah. Roxanne and you can hear it and hear him laugh. And yeah. Stuff, and a lot of people never caught that. Yeah. But, I love that shit. I, I think that stuff. Yeah. I absolutely love that. But just imagine being the one guy that screws it up. <laughs> you know how much you talk about pressure. You know what I mean? At the end, especially. Yeah. It's like, oh, come on. You're like, you're coming out of the bridge and you just hit the wrong note. Like, like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Flub the note. So the band's first televised performance was on a program called People and Places, transmitted live from Manchester by Granada Television on October 17, 1962. Keep in mind that date, 1962. They haven't blown up yet. The Beatle invasion, Beatlemania, Beatlemania has yeah. not happened yet. Okay, 1962, wow. So the band experienced massive popularity on the record charts in the UK from early 1963. Mm-hmm. However, Parlophone's American counterpart, Capitol Records, owned by EMI, refused to issue, the, issue their singles, Love Me Do, Please Please Me, and From Me to You in the U.S., mainly because no British act had ever sustained any commercial impact um, in, in America. Really? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, they were like, why are we going to do this? It doesn't make any sense. Who cares what's happening over there? And remember, these are all a bunch of stuff shirt freaking white guys sitting up in a... Yeah, I was going to say, it's typical America. Yeah. yeah you know? Yeah. Like, no. No, it's not ours. Right. It's not ours. What do you mean you're going to bring the Brits over here? Yeah. I don't I don't like that. They're going to... I don't like them. I don't like their culture and the you way they talk. Punks, get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> so VJ Records, a small Chicago label, is said by some to have been pressured into issuing these initial singles. Allegedly, it was part of a deal for the rights to another performer's masters. Okay? So basically, they were like, listen... We'll give you the masters for these guys if you take on these guys and Go release on. this for me. We Go should on. probably state, too, that at that time, that era of music, there was no independency for the artist. Okay. It's like nowadays, like, like I released an album, mm-hmm. you know, a couple months ago, and I did it all on my own, the distributing, the publishing, everything. I'm by myself. Right. And it's affordable. Like, anybody could do it now. Yeah. Right. Back then, you couldn't do it. You were dependent on a whole team of people. You had PR, you had manager, you had A&R, right, right. a record label, a tour manager. I mean, you couldn't do anything on your own independently as an artist back then. Right. Well, yeah, because, well, again, like we talked about on Buddy Holly, like everybody had a piece of the pie. Like yes. they even told you what to play. They wrote the songs. They did all this. That's just how it was Which, back then. It's funny because nowadays you can do it in your basement by yourself. Right. You do the whole thing. Well, but in, 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 uh, uh, on the other side of that, that to me also kind of ruined music. Yeah. Yeah. It took away the, the, yeah, the, the I don't know, the, what would you call it? It used to be like for people who, promiscuity. Yeah. You had to have something special 
in order right. to go in and get signed and have record deals and and you were you were rock stars. Right. Now you can go to Guitar Center for $200 and be an artist. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Even less. Yeah. yeah. And you don't have to be good because you can sit there and re-record it a million freaking times in your basement or use all these different you know, uh, tools like, you know, auto tune and they even have things now where it lines up your drum patterns for you. Well, or I was going to tell you that you can write MIDI. There's a new thing. I don't want to side chain too far uh, on this. Uh-oh. They make guitar now. They make guitar necks that have LED lights in the fret. Yeah, yeah I saw that. Inlays. Yeah. And it will literally light up and show you where to hit. So it's like Guitar Hero. Yeah. Can I buy one of those? Yeah, I mean, you could. Well, they actually have now this thing that you can actually use a guitar mm-hmm. that will um, go MIDI and translate into... Um, it's like auto-tune for guitars. No, but it translates into... You can have, like, orchestras. You can yes. have piano. Synth, and it sounds synth. exactly like it. It's okay. so crazy. So, yeah, I, to me, it kind of, you know, that, that whole... Um, being on the upper echelon and looking up to those yeah. guys, it kind of got ruined, but well, whatever. So Art Roberts, music director of Chicago powerhouse radio station WLS, placed Please Please Me into radio rotation in late February of 1963, making it possibly the first time the American people heard a Beatles record on an American radio. Ooh. All right? In August of 1963, the Philadelphia-based Swan Records tried again with the Beatles' She Loves You, and it failed. <laughs> people just weren't into it. Now, again, there, there's nothing. They were just playing it because back then they could just play what they wanted. Right. And Okay, so let's look at the era, too. That was, what, 62? Right? Say what? 62? This was, that was 63. Okay, yeah. so in that time, it was still a lot of gospel music. Right. Like you had Johnny Cash doing God music. You had um, the Carters, you know, who he was married to. They were all, all those people, like, gospel music was the big thing back in that time. It was either gospel or country. So when you get these young kids... From Liverpool that are singing about love and stuff at an early age. They're, you know, like you said, middle-aged white men in America are like, we can't have, this is, this is chaos. This is Satan's music. We can't have this. <laughs> it's, it's horrible. After the Beatles' massive success in 1964, VJ Records and Swan Records took advantage of their previously secured rights to the Beatles' early recordings. Remember when they recorded them early? Yes. Yeah. And reissued the songs they had the rights to, oh. which all reached the top 10 of the charts the second time around. Then, in a shifty move, VJ Records issued some weird LP repackaging of the Beatles material they had released, uh, quote, Introducing the Beatles, which was basically the Beatles' debut British album with some minor alterations. Oh. Okay. And you can get away with that back then. Yeah. Because they came in and they were like, well, we're going to record you, but we own those rights. And then they were like, well, we're not going to put it out. And then they were like, well, okay. And then all of a sudden they get famous and they're like, now, put it out now. <laughs> that's, that's what they did. So Andy uh, Lothian, a former Scottish music producer, laid claim to the term in that he coined Beatlemania. Oh, Oh, he's going to trademark it? Now we're talking about Beatlemania here. Oh, okay. So while speaking to a reporter on October 7th, 1963, at the Caird Hall in Dundee at a Beatles concert that took place during the Beatles' 1963 mini tour of Scotland, Beatlemania was taking over the world. And I'm telling you... You know, we've talked about Michael Jackson before, about yeah. how huge he was mm-hmm. at his time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked about uh, Buddy Holly and the things that he achieved and stuff. And that's why we do this show. Right. Just wait. Because the Beatles, they were no joke. Oh, I know. I mean, ask any, ask your mom or grand, well, well, grandma I mean, or whatever. I have but a very I mean, young lady at work who just nonstop blasts one of their albums for eight hours a day, every single day. Really? Work. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to tell you that uh, one of our listeners actually gave me or sent me a copy of remember i was telling you the gray album which was danger mouse and the beatles white album together yeah no no no. it was uh danger mouse created uh 
the the uh, Jay Z's the Black album and and did a ma- uh, mashup with the Beatles White album. Oh yeah yeah yeah. The Gray album. Yeah. She sent me a copy of that. Really? I'll send it over to you guys so you can listen to oh, it. Cool. It's so good. Oh my god, it's so good. So in early November 1963, Brian Epstein persuaded Ed Sullivan to commit to presenting the Beatles on three editions of his show in February. So in other words, I need you to commit three different times they come on your show. Do you know who Ed Sullivan is? Uh, that actually sounds vaguely familiar. He's the guy that used to talk like this. <laughs> that was you, actually really horrible. I don't know. You didn't make it till you were on Ed Sullivan back in those yeah, days. Yeah, okay. Ed Sullivan was the, that's the show. He, he was, was the, the one with, I'm sure we'll get into in a in their own episode but yeah. a little spoiler alert when the doors went on okay they played um oh, what was the name of that song light my fire yes and they didn't allow them to say the word higher you know he's like girl we couldn't get much higher that's oh, a, a line yeah. in the song yeah, yeah well ed sullivan was like no we can't have that that's that's just crazy talk <laughs> and so they were going to change it and jim morrison's like yeah that's cool we'll change it yeah well when it went to live they actually sang the, they, the they real lyrics. Hell yeah. And, and they, they got never, banned. Yeah, they were never allowed to play on there <laughs> again. Like, that was like Rage Against the Machine when they were doing that uh, on MTV or something like that. They weren't allowed to swear, and all of a sudden... Was just, that SNL they were on? Was it SNL? It, it might have been of, SNL. It was one of those. They were, I know that's happened quite a Dude, few times I on SNL. so bummed that that concert sold out. I wanted to go to that so bad. I'm so against Rage Against the Machine and their whole like corporate... Like, we fight against the machine and everything else. Our ticket prices are 250 bucks. I know, but yeah. stop the it. music... Oh, my God. I would yeah. love to see those guys I mean, that's live. fine. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he turned this guaranteed exposure into a record deal with Capitol Records because, listen, I just got these guys on Ed Sullivan for three episodes or three different shows or whatever. Right. They're going to sell records. Oh, yeah. Record label goes, oh, okay, we know who that is. Oh, yeah. So Capitol agreed to a mid-January 1964 release for I Want to Hold Your Hand. Oh, Still, yeah, of course. <laughs> Still, unexpected circumstances triggered premature airplay of an imported copy of the single on a Washington, D.C. radio station in mid-December. So basically, it was like, uh, what is that called when someone plays your shit and, and gets your, your music beforehand? A leak. Yeah, it leaked. Yeah, there yeah. you go. I don't know why I couldn't think of that word. Leak. Duh. Anyway, <laughs> so it basically leaked. So Capital brought forward the release of the record on December 26, 1963. On a side note, Bob Dylan. Mm. You know, hey, Bob, hey, yeah. hey the guys up here, listen to me. Hey, let's talk about the Beatles, although it's Bob Dylan, too. So Bob hey. Dylan introduced the Beatles to the uh, the drug cannabis in 1964. Son of a bitch. In a New York hotel room. You don't want none of this. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of. It makes everything better. There's no side effects. It's really cheap. But I don't want a hangover. I kind of want some of that. So he offered the Fab Four marijuana as a consequence of his misconception that the lyrics in their hit song, I Want to Hold Your Hand, from Meet the Beatles were, I get high. In actuality, they were, I can't hide. So he thought they said, I get high. So he's like, hey, fellas. Hey, you want to get high? Hey, you guys like to get high. (laughs) So this initial partaking in drugs grew into heavier experimentation with LSD and other substances whose psychedelic effects were commonly thought to have manifested themselves in the band's music. Yeah. The Beatles. So Bob Dylan birthed Sgt. Pepper. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So uh, in turn, however, this is pretty cool. The Beatles influenced Dylan's move into uh, electrified rock sounds in his music. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, so they were like, hey, try this weed. And he's like, they're like, well, I, uh, perhaps you should try playing electric guitar. <laughs> and he's like, oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, this is great, too. <laughs> yeah. There you go. That's how it went, folks. That's, trade, like, trade for trade. That's yeah, how it went. That was good. 
So several New York City radio stations, first WMCA, then WINS, and finally WABC began playing I Want to Hold Your Hand on its release day. The Beatlemania that had started in Washington was duplicated in New York and quickly spread to other markets. The record sold one million copies in just 10 days. Wow. This is the 60s. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> By January 16th, Cashbox Magazine, remember we talked about them earlier, yes, Cashbox. had certified the Beatles record as number one in the edition published with the cover date of January 23rd, 1963. So maybe it is like a billboard then. Yeah. Cashbox. It sounds like it. Before billboard. Yeah. Right? I would assume. I don't, yeah. yeah, I don't know if, yeah, I don't really, I don't, we've talked about it before, but I don't remember. So the widespread phenomenon contributed to the near hysterical fan reaction on February 7th, 1964 at John F. Kennedy International Airport, which had been renamed in December 1963, a record-breaking <clears throat> whew, 73 million viewers, approximately 40% of the U.S. population at the time tuned in to the very first Ed Sullivan, Ed Sullivan show um, and the Beatles' appearance Two days later on February 9th. Wow. Think about that. Well, back then they only had like five channels. So, I mean, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, but, but but then how did you know about it, though? Radio. Radio. Yeah. Because I'm going to show you something really cool. Because radio was a huge. It was huge. Huge. Let me, let me tell you this. It's going to be huge. <laughs> it was huge. So, I mean, 40% of the population. Yeah, that's crazy. So, this is uh, to show you how big Beatlemania was. Yeah, yeah. This is Sigourney Weaver, 14 years old, watching the Beatles live at a concert. Oh, that's amazing. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah, I saw it before. Yeah. We got to post that up on our thing and then show people. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. So, I mean, that's how big Beatles mania was. I mean, it was everybody was like all in on it. Yeah, you know? they were they were huge. huge. So, huge. But those are people that actually watched it. So on TV, again, yeah, you only had like three stations, yeah. right? But you, you, you've got damn near half the population watching you perform. That's crazy. Yeah. It's just so, it blows my mind. So during the week of April 4th, the Beatles held the top five places in the Billboard Hot 100. Think about that. The first five. Beatles, 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 Beatles. You know what I mean? That's crazy. It's, what? And by the way, that feat has never been repeated. Makes sense. N- never. They had an additional seven songs at lower positions. That's 12 songs on the Billboard charts at once. So obviously Billboard was around then because we're talking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, think about that. They had twelve songs, five of which had the top spots. That's a whole ass album. That's crazy. At once, yeah, it's just insane to me. They were so unaware of their popularity in America that on their uh, their arrival, they initially thought the crowds were there to get, uh, to, to see somebody else. They were coming over and they're just like, "Oh, it's not going to be that bad." And all of a sudden, ah, you know, <laughs> I'm like, "Wait a minute, who's here?" So, oh, and uh, their concerts, uh, concerts, by the way, uh, they often smelled like urine. Oh, little fun fact. Why? Um, because apparently the uh, the droves of young girls are turned up uh, turned up for their concerts, uh, for their movie pre- premieres, or to just to say hi to the Beatles. They, uh, you know, they were uh, apparently too distracted to uh, <laughs> to go to the bathroom. Oh, to they, actually they didn't leave. want to leave their spot, so they would just let it flow right there. Oh, because they didn't want to leave, so they just let it flow. Let it flow. That's a good shirt idea. We have to note, not for Ringo, but for the other three. <laughs> Wait, what you what you mean? Ringo, they would leave to go pee. Ringo is like the best drummer. Yeah. Oh boy. Well, a lot of people do consider him to be a. Uh, here's a, the thing. In, the, in, in an innovator. So the here's the thing with Ringo. Okay, oh boy. He, he held the spot. He was a good placeholder. But I'm sure as we go through this, I'm sure you have it somewhere in there, or if you watch the documentary. Paul and John did all the drumming on the yeah. albums. And there's so many spots where he could have like intricate fills or just something, and there's nothing. It's just all pocket beats, just 
the best like the, the best yeah. interview I saw with these guys that they were like asking like if they thought that Ringo was the best drummer and they're like he's not even the best drummer in the band. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So in nineteen sixty four the band undertook their first appearances outside of Europe and North America, touring Australia and New Zealand, notably without Mr. Ringo Starr, oh. who was ill and was temporarily replaced by session drummer Jimmy uh, Jimmy Nickel. When they arrived in Adelaide, the Beatles were greeted by what is reputed to be the largest crowd of their touring career, when over 300,000 people turned out to see them at the Adelaide Town Hall. Wow. Wow. Okay. A, 64, 300,000 people. And by the way, Adelaide's population was only 200,000. <laughs> so that means 100,000 people from outside of that town came to see them. Yeah, that's crazy. In September of that year, baseball owners, um, owner Charles O'Finley paid the band an unheard sum of $150,000 to play Kansas City, Missouri. That's right around $1,398,914.52 today and completely unheard of at that time. That's crazy. You didn't pay bands that amount of money back then. To give you a comparison, mm-hmm. I, you know my 72 Chevelle I have? Yeah. I have the window sticker, the mm-hmm. original window sticker that was in it. Yeah. In 1972, that car, mm-hmm. MSRP, from the dealership was $3,290. That's expensive. And that was 10 years after what we're talking about. Yeah. That's crazy. So they yeah. were, like, filthy rich. Filthy. Dirty. Dirty. Well, filthy at rich. least the people that were getting them, their, their team was filthy rich. Right. We'll yeah. put it that way. Right. Yeah. But still, that's a lot of money for right. a musician back in that time. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, that, that, was, that was completely unheard of. So in 1965, Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom bestowed uh-huh. the band the Member of the Order of the British Empire, or MBE, a civil honor nominated by Prime Minister Harold Wilson. Oh, wow. That's kind of cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah. On August 15th that year, the Beatles performed in the first stadium rock concert in the history of rock and roll. Wait, so they were the first. Wow. They were the first. That's a good trivia question to remember. Yes, they, they were the first. And it was at Shea Stadium in New York to a crowd of 55,600 people. The stadium's capacity... Is only 57,333. So that was pretty much a sold-out show. But that's the capacity now, so I don't know if it's grown any since then. They may have actually changed it or whatever, but yeah, it was right. damn near sold out. That's crazy. So the band later admitted that they had been uh, had mainly been unable to hear themselves play or sing due to the volume of screaming and cheering from the fans. Yeah, could you imagine that with the amps back then and yeah. everything, and nothing was mic'd or nothing? Yeah. You know what I mean? It was just... That's yeah. That would be crazy. Yeah. Well, this concert, unfortunately, is pretty much why they started disliking playing live shows. Okay, and this is in uh, in, in August of 1965. No, so wow. in 65, they were just like, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back home. So in 1965, recently interested in Indian music, this is a little side note, George Harrison purchased a sitar. Oh. He played it in the song Norwegian Wood, The Bird Has Flown, the first instance of such an instrument being used on a rock record. He later took sitar lessons from maestro Ravi Shankar and implemented additional elements of Eastern music and spirituality into his songs, notably Love You To uh, You too and Without You, Without You. Oh, jeez. These musical decisions significantly increased the influence of Indian music on popular culture in the late 1960s. So they basically introduced that to the, the, the U.S., you know. And what's crazy, too, is that up into, all the way up until his death, he was still involved in the whole Indian um, culture. Yeah, huh. one of the best sitar performances on a an actual like album or song that yeah. I like Love is uh, no, I'm oh. thinking Soulfly. <laughs> Soulfly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cooker. <laughs> <laughs> so in July 1966, when the Beatles toured the Philippines, they unintentionally snubbed the nation's first lady, Imelda Marcos, 
this is in the Philippines in the 60s, folks, who had expected the group to attend a breakfast reception at the presidential palace. Manager Brian Epstein was forced to give all the money back that the band had earned while they were there before being allowed to leave the country. Oh, boy. So basically, you insulted Emilda Marcos. You know what I mean? Like, it's bad. All kinds of bad. So upon returning from the Philippines, an earlier comment by John Lennon back in March of that year launched a backlash against the Beatles. In an interview with British reporter Maureen Cleave, Lennon had offered his opinion that Christianity was dying and that the Beatles were, quote, more popular than Jesus now. Yeah. You don't say that, folks. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who, who, Oasis tried that, too. Yeah. Remember they said they were more popular, but I think they were just trying to like act like they were, because they said they were bigger than the Beatles. Mm. Yeah. I, I never liked Oasis. I did. I was a fan. Really? Yeah. Until I realized that they were twats. Yeah, they're so, just cocky. Yeah. I was like, eh, I'm out. And you know? A lot of this, popular artists are. Yeah. There was an immediate response, starting with an announcement by two radio stations in Alabama and Texas that they had banned Beatles music from their playlist. Again, this wasn't like, oh, man, I just upset these people, and now I've got to like you know go on and say I'm sorry. Everyone was like, how dare you refer yourself to Jesus? I mean, it was bad. Hmm. So um, uh, W-A-K-Y, DJ Tommy Charles said, quote, we just felt it was so absurd and sacrilegious that something ought to be done to show them that they can't get away with this sort of thing. Around two dozen other stations follow suit uh, with similar announcements. Some stations in the South, shocker, went further, organizing demonstrations with bonfires, drawing hordes of teenagers, uh, teenagers to burn their Beatles records and other mem- uh, memorabilia. Now, are you picking up on this, Logan, that these guys are like the innovators of everything in the music? So, like, you know, Marilyn Manson mm-hmm. being the Antichrist superstar, mm, yeah. okay, being innovating the sitar and different instruments into music when yeah. it never has been. You know what I mean? Like, they've the Beatles innovated a lot. Makes Everything sense. that you have a right lot. now. Makes oh, sense. we haven't even talked about them going into the studio yet. Oh. Just wait. <laughs> so many people affiliated with churches in the American South took the suggestion seriously. So everyone's like, everyone should burn your records, these sacrilegious, blasphemous sons of bitches. You know, burn them all, burn them all in Jesus' name. And everyone's just like, yeah, we should burn everything. There's videos of that on YouTube you can look at. Oh, yeah. They're black and white, and they're like throwing records in piles in the street and burning them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll actually talk about that here. So the Memphis, Tennessee uh, City Council, aware that a Beatles concert was scheduled at the Mid-South Coliseum during the group's upcoming U.S. tour, voted to cancel it. Rather than have, quote, municipal facilities be used as a forum to ridicule anyone's religion and said, quote, the Beatles are not welcome in Memphis. So now you can't even come here. On August 13th, the Ku Klux Klan, mm-hmm, those guys, nailed a Beatles album to a wooden cross and subsequently burned it, vowing, quote, vengeance with conservative, group, uh, conservative groups staging further public burnings of Beatles records. And you can see, like I said, those videos online. It's, it's insane. But then again, think about it. We've had book burnings. We've had, we, we burn everything. We, now we're taking stuff out of schools. You know what I mean? Like right. we just, it's, we, everyone will always find something to be pissed off about. It's changed. Yeah. People can't change. Huh? People are, they're afraid of change. Right. It, it's, yeah. it's just, yeah, well, whatever. We're not getting into that. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't icons and assholes. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so young people across the U.S. and South Africa burn Beatles records in protest. Then, under tremendous, pre- uh, tremendous? tremendous pressure from the American media, John Lennon apologized for his remarks at a, pro- a press conference in Chicago on August 11th, the eve of the first performance of what turned out to be their final tour. Mm. Getting ready to go on tour. He said, I'm sorry, you know, that uh, I, I didn't mean to whatever. So the Beatles performed their last concert at Candlestick Park in San Francisco on August 29th, 1966. Think about that. Okay. 
1966. Mm-hmm. That was 10 years before I was born. Mm-hmm. So what is that, 55 years ago? 50, almost 56 years ago? Yeah. Right? From that point forward, they focused on recording music. They ended up pioneering more advanced, multi-layered arrangements in popular and pop music. After three months um, away from each other, they returned to Abbey Road Studios on November 24th, 1966 to begin a 129-day recording period in making their eighth album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which was released on June 1st, 1967. And, and Enter Dewey Cox. Yes. Because <laughs> that's exactly where they got that from. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> I need my goat. Yeah. Are the gongs right? I don't think the gongs are tuned correctly. We yeah. need to tune the gongs. So remember, they recorded one album in 13 hours, and this one was basically almost a year. Yeah. So, well, half a year. Yeah, half three a year. Quarters, yeah. yeah. Along with studio tricks such as sound effects, unconventional microphone placements, um, automatic double tracking, and very speed recording, the Beatles began to augment the recordings with unconventional instruments for rock music at the time. These instruments included string and brass ensembles, mm-hmm. Indian instruments such as the sitar mm-hmm. and the swarmandal, okay, tape loops, and early electronic devices, including the Mellotron, which was used with flute voices on the intro to Strawberry Fields Forever. Now, does this is this before or after they went to India and tripped? This is after. Okay. So yeah. we need to mention that. Yes. So well, we, we kind of talk about that here in a second. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. So... McCartney, okay, um, mm-hmm. once asked Martin what a guitar would sound like if it was played underwater, and he was serious. Oh my! God. Again, these guys were. Yeah. <laughs> Lennon also wondered what his vocals would sound like if he was hanging upside down from the ceiling. <laughs> Unfortunately, their ideas were ahead of the available technology at the time because they were they were up on all the their their how do I put this? Since they were doing so many. Uh, um, um, uh, I guess you'd psychedelic. say psychedelic drugs. Yeah, yeah. They were more open to these ideas that nobody else even thought of yet. And, yeah. and the technology wasn't there. Right. You know, he'd be like, oh, what if I took a keyboard and plugged it into a computer? And they're like, what the hell's a computer? <laughs> I want to take a guitar and smother it with melted marshmallows and then play it to the key of Z. I like it. There is no Z key. <laughs> we will make it with right. marshmallows. That's right. We'll make our own. <laughs> so beginning with the use of a string quartet uh, arranged by George Martin on yesterday in 1965, the Beatles pioneered a modern form of art rock and art song exemplified by the double quartet string arrangement on Eleanor Rigby, which I love that song. Eleanor Rigby. Yeah. Here, there, and everywhere, and she's loving home. In addition, Lennon and McCartney's interest in the music of Johann Sebastian Bach led them to use a piccolo uh, trumpet on the arrangement of Penny Lane and a Mellotron at the start of, again, Strawberry Fields Forever. So they were just, they were like, you know, it'd be great. Take that piccolo, shove it up me arse. <laughs> now blow. <laughs> How's it sound? You know what I mean? Like it's. I know it sounds me saying it like that. I'm going way. Yeah, Ringo's yeah. like, I don't want to blow it. <laughs> Why do I have to blow it again, John? <laughs> <laughs> on June 25th, 1967, the Beatles became the first band globally transmitted on television in front of an estimated 400 million people worldwide in a segment within the first ever worldwide TV satellite hookup, a show entitled Our World. The Beatles were transmitted live from Abbey Road Studios, and their new song, All You Need Is Love, was recorded live during the show, wow. which is amazing. Yeah. Following the triumphs of the Sgt. Pepper album, mm-hmm, and the global broadcast, the Beatles uh, Beatle situation seemingly just started to get worse. Worst? Worse. First, their uh, manager, Brian Epstein, died of an overdose of sleeping pills on August 27th, 1962, at only 32. Wow. 
Yeah, super young. And the band's business affairs began to unravel. Next, at the end of 1967, they received their first major negative press criticism in the UK with disparaging reviews of their surrealistic TV film, Magic Mystery Tour. Ma- the Magical Mystery Tour, sorry. Uh, the public wasn't a fan either. Nobody yeah, liked you it. You cannot be sober and watch that yeah. show and understand it. Gotcha. Which, by the way, have you ever seen the movie Across the Universe? No, is it good? It's amazing. So it's basically a uh, a musical I know what about it is. the Beatles. I just I've never. It watched is. That's the first movie my wife ever made me watch. Really? And we were uh, we were feeling good. We'll put yeah, it that way. Yeah. And man, there's one part in it where uh, Bono is in it. Wow, because it's all during this whole period of. Is them. he forcing you to listen to his music? He, oh yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He, he threw it right <laughs> on my iPod again. <laughs> so the group spent the early part of 1968 in Rishikesh, Uttar Pradesh, India, studying trans uh, transcendental meditation with the Maharashi Mahesh uh, Yogi. Oh, upon what? their return, Lennon and McCartney formed Apple Corp, which oh. initially a philanthropic business venture that described as an attempt at Western communism. The middle part of 1968 saw the guys busy uh, recording the double album, The Beatles, popularly known as The White Album. I didn't know that was actually just dubbed The Beatles, the self-titled album. I know the White Album? Know. I thought it was just The White Album. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, that's what it is, hmm. due to so, its white cover. They basically got introduced to psilocybin, yeah. which we've talked about on both podcasts. Yep. Um, and it just it opens different sections of your brain. That's why a lot of people do it. Um, they do it to get over addictions and... PTSD, it helps with that. Right. But it's a crazy process. Like, you're literally tripping for, like, I think it's, like, 14 hours straight, and then you finally come down, and you have to purge before you do it. So, like, you 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 ingest this stuff, and then I think it's, like, 25 minutes later, you end up vomiting mm-hmm. it all out, and that's what, like, spreads it into your bloodstream. And then you open up all these different channels and, like, dimensions in your mind, and that's basically what these guys did and then came up with this music that's crazy drugs are bad okay yeah, <laughs> again to be honest they're like the first to do it though i mean correct. a lot yeah. of people do it nowadays but like they, they they're like the innovators of everything if you think about it i blame bob dylan <laughs> yep gateway hey, drug yep. yeah weed's a gateway drug right and then what everyone says yep. you think he just stood in the alley with his glass like hey i got something for you guess what's gonna happen now fellas these sessions saw deep divisions beginning within the band, including John Lennon's new girlfriend, Yoko Ono, Oof. being at his side through much of the sessions and the feeling that Paul McCartney was becoming too dominating. Paul gradually took more control of the group, um, uh, obviously because everyone else is just doped up. <laughs> Internal divisions within the band had been a small but growing problem during the earlier career. Most notably, this was reflected in the difficulty that George Harrison experienced in getting his songs into uh, Beatles albums. So, he wrote a bunch of stuff, and they were like, no, sorry, it's not good enough. <laughs> While Ringo's in the back going, how's it feel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, George, come sit with me. He's like, I got Octopus's garden, sorry. <laughs> and in the growing artistic and personal differences between John and Paul, they wanted to do different things. Where John wanted to be more artistic, Paul wanted to actually be more like pop, mm-hmm. and he wanted to keep that kind of going. I mean, they wanted to experiment with stuff, but he wanted to be... They he knew that the um, he knew where the money was. He knew where the right. money was. Yeah. Right. We're, we're this is how we got popular. We can't deviate too far from that. And right? John, like even if you saw him, he wore like raggedy clothes. He didn't really take care of himself hygiene wise. Like he didn't give a crap about money. Yeah. John, yeah. Lennon, John Lennon was all about the idea, which leads to something we'll talk about in a, uh, in a minute here. Oh. So on the business side, Paul wanted Lee Eastman, the father of his wife, uh, Linda Eastman, to manage the Beatles. But the other guys wanted New York manager Alan Klein to represent them. So Paul McCartney wanted his 
father-in-law mm-hmm. to manage the the band. Oh, where you know all of the band's decisions in the past were unanimous, but this time the four could not agree on a manager. Uh, Lennon, Harrison, and Starr they all felt that you know Eastman, um, Paul's father-in-law here, mm-hmm. would look after Paul before the group. Right. Okay, which makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a conflict of interest. Right. Paul was quoted years later during the anthology interview saying, "Quote." Looking back, I can understand why they would feel that was biased against them. Afterward, the band kicked themselves in the ass for the Klein decision as Klein embezzled millions of dollars from their earnings. Oh. Yeah, so would have Eastman, would he have been better? Uh, question, is Linda Eastman, is that the wife that passed away from Paul McCartney? Yes. Yeah? Okay. Yeah, and now he's married to a woman with polio. Yeah. Mm. Poor poor guy. Well, poor wives, obviously, yeah, but just yeah. that just sucks. So their final live performance was on the rooftop of the Apple Building in Seville Row, in uh, London on so January. This is the documentary at Disney Plus is the whole writing of this album, Get Back. Yeah. And then performing on the rooftop. Right. Which is, yeah, that's what it's a three part. You got to watch it. Yeah, I'm going to have to check it out. So this is on January 30th, 1969. Okay. The next to last day of the problematic Get Back sessions. Mainly due to Paul McCartney's efforts, they recorded the fi- their final album, Abbey Road, in the summer of 1969. Okay. So they went in, they recorded Get Back. And apparently there was a lot of problems. Like you said, they recorded mm-hmm. all that. And then after that, they recorded Abbey Road. Which, fun fact, guess who uh, was the studio engineer? I don't know. He's in the documentary. Mm. Who? Alan Parson. Really? Yep. No kidding. Yeah. From the Alan Parsons Project. Yep. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. like, he, he's young. Any idea who that is? Uh, yeah, Alan Parson. Yeah? Yeah. Can you I sing a song? I am the eye in the sky. No, but I've heard, I've heard of the Alan Parsons Project, though. I can feel yeah. your eye. It's such a great song. But um, I didn't know that. Like, cause yeah, that's I was crazy. watching the documentary, and then they, they said, yeah, we got Alan Parson. And I'm like, is that the Alan Parson from Parson? So I looked it up, and it, it was. That's pretty so awesome. he started as a studio engineer, made all that money from the Beatles, and started his band, The Parson Project. That's with awesome. With that money. That's so huh. cool. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know that. I'm going to have to watch that for sure. It's really yeah. good. Everybody else should watch that, too, and let us know what you think. Yeah. So John Lennon announced his departure to the rest of the group on September 20th, 1969. So right afterwards. The rest of the band talked him out of uh, out of it, saying um, or saying anything publicly. Basically, keep it to us for right now. Right. In March 1970, the band gave the Get Back session tapes to American producer Phil Spector, whose wall of sound production, you know, because that's what he was into, this huge sound, right. was in direct opposition to the record's original intent to appear as a stripped down live studio performance. McCartney announced the breakup of the band on April 10th, 1970, a week before releasing his first solo album, McCartney, which is funny. If you think about that, because here he is, he's like, the band's breaking up. I got to make something my own. You know what I mean? Oh, he had songs in his oh, head. Yeah. Though. I mean, yeah. they, they show like when he comes early to the sessions or stays late and everybody else is gone and he's on the piano jamming his stuff. And yeah, like he was always just times 10. In right. His, right. You know what I mean? Also, to all of our listeners out there, um, we will at some point in time actually dive into each member. Uh, right now, I just wanted to kind of go over the overview of the Beatles and how they started and how they ended and so on and so forth. So we will go into one day Paul McCartney, and then we will go into John Lennon. Well, Ringo you know will be like five minutes. Ringo, that'll, that'll be a bonus. Ringo's just going to be like, <laughs> here he is. There he goes. <laughs> I'm kidding. And if Ringo Starr ever listens to this, I'm kidding, man. We, we love you. All right. So anyway, I doubt he ever will, but who knows? So um, anyway, so he released his own uh, his solo album here, right? So. On May 8th, 1970, the Spectre-produced version of Get Back was released as the album Let It Be, followed by the documentary film of the same name. The Beatles' partnership was legally dissolved after McCartney filed a lawsuit on December 31st, 1970. Following the group's dissolution, the BBC marketed an extensive collection of Beatles recordings, mainly of original studio sessions from 1963 to 1968. Much of this material formed the basis for a 1988 radio documentary series. 
the Beebs lost Beatle tapes, which is kind of cool if you think about it. It'd be cool yeah. to go back and listen mm-hmm. to those. Later in 1994, the best of these sessions were given an official EMI release on um, uh, released on live at the BBC. I wonder if does Michael or did Michael own those? Remember, Michael bought the Beatles yeah. stuff. Well, if he bought the whole catalog, that would be included. I would imagine. I would assume, right? Yeah. Was that considered part of their catalog? Yeah. Mm, that's crazy. Michael with that fu money is like, I take the whole catalog <laughs> for five hundred thousand dollars. Mine. <laughs> so on the evening of December eighth, nineteen eighty. John Lennon was shot and fatally wounded in the archway of the Dakota, his home in New York City. His killer was Mark David Chapman, an American Beatles fan incensed by Lennon's lavish lifestyle and his 1966 comment that the Beatles were, quote, more popular than Jesus. So, do you ever watch that movie, by the way, with Jared Leto? Yes. It wasn't bad. Yeah, it's not bad. It's okay. It's, it's, it's Well, again, I'm a huge, like, nerd when it comes to yeah. history and, like, killings and stuff like that and, mm-hmm. and it was just crazy he did a good part with that role i mean yeah. he was very creepy with oh yeah it, it was know? super creepy standing in his underwear in that hotel room just like yeah so the, the whole point uh the whole i guess view of the movie is from mark david chapman's like it's him perspective yeah like how he got to be how he got there how he went and got the book and how he sat there and read and then he saw him the fr- you know what i mean and then like he would wait for john Lennon to show up and he never would and it would like anger him yeah mm-hmm. like he'd be waiting out there for hours and hours you know and then that's what like ultimately pissed him off but remember what you were saying a little bit ago though about how john basically didn't he wore like crappy clothes and everything else well that's what mark david chapman was like the second he saw him spending money or mm-hmm. being living like a you know better lifestyle it it just pissed him off and the guy was unraveled we'll yeah. just put it that way yeah. Real, yeah real bad so chapman said he was inspired by the fictional character holden caulfield from jd salinger's novel the catcher in the rye a phony killer who despised hypocrisy Chapman planned the killing over several months and waited for John at the Dakota on the morning of December 8th. Early in the evening, Chapman met Lennon, who signed his copy of the album Double Fantasy and subsequently left for a recording session. So he saw him outside. He was going to do it then, but instead was like, hey, could you sign this for me? Right. And John, being who he is, was like, absolutely. You know, no problem. Later that night, Lennon and his wife, Yoko Ono, returned to the Dakota. As Lennon and Ono approached the building's entrance... Chapman fired five hollow-point bullets from a thirty-eight Special revolver, four of which hit John in the back. Mm. Chapman remained at the scene, reading the catcher in the rye, until the police arrested him. John Lennon was rushed to Roosevelt Hospital in a police car where he was pronounced dead on arrival at around 11.15 p.m. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. You know what I mean? And that's definitely not a, a it's not the first time or last time that a crazy fan has killed an artist before. Was right. it Selena? Selena was killed by yeah. a, uh, it was the 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 president of her fan club. Yeah. Because I guess she found out she was embezzling money, so she killed her. Wow. Yeah. Selena would be a good one too, man. She was, yeah. she was a hell of a, hell of a story. So in February 1994, the then three surviving Beatles reunited to produce and record additional music for a few of John Lennon's old unfinished demos, almost as if the uh, as if reuniting the Beatles. Free as a Bird premiered as part of the Beatles anthology, a series of television documentaries, and was released as a single on December 9, uh, 1995, with Real Love following in March of 1996. Uh, These songs were also included in the three anthology collections of CDs released in 95 and 96, each consisting of two CDs of never-before-released Beatles material. Oh, wow. All kinds of material. Yeah. But that's what happens back in the day. You wrote a bunch of stuff, and again, you know, when you go in to record, you record, you you pre-produce and record just scratch tracks of 30, 40, 50 songs. Then you go through, well, uh, let's take half these out. Right. Then you got 25. 
Then you go through and you say, ah, let's take half those out. Then you're down to like 12 to 15. Yeah. Right. And then those are the songs you work on. So then all of those are left over. And as long as they, they're recorded and, and left there, you can always go back and redo you know, them. Right. I read that Prince has a catalog of over like 200 songs unreleased that the estate is trying to work with record labels to yeah. get it out to the people. If, uh, it's over 200 songs. Yeah, and I think it's more than that. Um, that he never released. It's like, yeah. what? Yeah, I think it's like, more than that. I think it's for the next 10 years he can re- yeah. release music. Yeah. And, Isn't that crazy? Yeah, dude. It's, that's all he did. Like yeah. He had nothing but studios in his house. I can't wait to do Prince, by the yeah. way. It's going to be so fun. So anyway, on November 29th, 2001, George Harrison unfortunately died at a property belonging to Paul McCartney on uh, Heather Road in Beverly Hills, California. He was 58 years old. As relayed in a statement by his wife, Olivia, and son, Donnie, his uh, final message to the world was, quote, everything else can wait, but the search for God cannot, and love one another. So even up until his end, you know what I mean? He seemed like he's super cool, too. By the way, I love the Traveling Wilburys. Oh, yeah. I absolutely love That's them. That's good stuff, yeah, man. love them. So the Beatles were the best-selling popular musical act of the 20th century. The 20th century. EMI estimated that by 1985, the band had sold over one billion discs or tapes worldwide. Wow. In addition, the Recording Industry Association, uh, Association of America has certified the Beatles as the top-selling artists of all time in the United States based on U.S. sales of singles and albums. Yep. The Beatles have spent 132 weeks at number one on the Billboard 200 chart. Wow. At, and, and, okay, that's the most by any artist. The second would be 52 weeks. Can you guys uh, give me an idea who you think that is? Michael Jackson. Elvis or Michael, one of the two. It's Michael. It's Garth Brooks. Wait, what? No. <laughs> are, you, are you serious? Me? 52 weeks. Yeah. Really? Garth Brooks. Yeah, Garth Brooks was huge. From friends in low places? Yeah, dude, he was huge at one time. Wow. Absolutely. I mean, I remember he, he was big in the 90s. but yeah. yeah, no, he was huge. So was Billy Ray Cyrus, though. No, no Garth Brooks was Garth way Brooks was above and bigger, beyond. Yeah. So was Vanilla Ice. Oh, boy. For a day. <laughs> <laughs> so the Beatles are only uh, one of two musical acts to have eight consecutive al- consecutive albums on the Billboard 200 all hit number one. Think about that really fast. Each album you create or you release, mm-hmm. eight in a row, all hit number one on Billboard. That's crazy. There was one other. Michael Jackson. Can you guys give me an idea who that is? Garth Brooks. <laughs> it's not Garth Brooks. No, it would it would be Michael because we talked about it. Yeah, that's why I thought that's why I thought he would be number one for the uh, the fifty two weeks thing or whatever. Okay, um, like his first four or five albums were all charted number one. I thought it was. Yeah, but it's not eight. Oh, so we're talking eight. Oh, oh higher than eight or no, 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 exactly. It, it's eight. eight because eight's okay. the highest so um, far. You got to think albums. I mean, mm. that's a lot. Of, um, Hold on. What if you only can had you give me one like chance. a a one decade? I just gave you a hint to answer correctly. Did you answer correctly? Um, that was your hint. That was my hint? Yeah. Eminem? It was Eminem. No kidding. Eminem, dude. <laughs> Why are you, <laughs> you look so confused. I'm so confused. <laughs> like, for real. Yeah, that's oh, it. From wow. the information I got. But listen, if it's wrong, blame the internet. Like, he had the two albums that I know of that were really popular. Dude, he's got but, a ton I mean, of records. Beyond you know, that, he's got so too? many albums. Yeah. Really? I mean... It it was it's actually kind of funny because in his song Kill Shot when he was like dog and MGK or whatever he was like my worst albums are better than your best albums like that was one oh, of his biggest lines yeah well, Eminem was one of those guys that could literally crap on a record and put it out and people would buy it he did actually do that and tested it and it actually flopped <laughs> really did, bad and he was like man screw that it album flopped really bad <laughs> yeah it went yeah. <laughs> wow I learned something new I yeah. would have never thought Eminem. 
So Anthology 1 sold 450,000 copies on its first day of release, re- reaching the highest volume of single-day sales ever for an album. I, I bought it the day it came out. Is oh, that double wait. double CD? It was white. Yep. Two CDs. So you're one of them. Yep. So in 2000, a compilation album named, um, named One was mm-hmm. released, containing almost every number one single released by the band from 1962 to 1970. Wow. This collection sold 3.6 million copies in its first week and more than 12 million in three weeks worldwide, becoming the fastest selling album of all time and the biggest selling album of 2000. That's crazy. The collection also reached number one in the United States and 33 other countries. In 1988, every Beatles member, including Pete Best and Stuart Sutcliffe, was um, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This week... It's so awesome. This is the week of May 29th. It's Memorial Day weekend. Oh, yeah. By the way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Happy Memorial Day. Well, uh, this is coming out way after that, but. That's true. Happy Memorial Day to everybody. Uh, Not a whole lot going on in the news musically. Um, I actually struggled to find anything, to be honest with you. It's all just filler stuff. I mean, nothing major that I've seen. Um, have you guys heard anything major? Um, not. I mean, a lot of people not are recently. So the the big thing, I guess, that's going on right now that people are talking about in music news is a lot of these artists are boycotting concerts in favor for gun control. With, with this I did see, yeah, I did see. There's a lot of uh, of that going on right now. Like as far as like uh, you know, famous actors and actresses and stuff like that. They're doing. There's a new movement. Yeah, that they have right. On, I saw a commercial for that the other day, so I could see like artists doing that. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. You figured that would have happened a while ago. Yeah, like Jack White is canceling his concerts to, I guess. But what is it? What would you call it? Uh, I don't even want to get into it because that's entirely, that's a totally different thing. I just don't understand, I guess. Harry Styles is giving a million dollars for gun safety. So, Okay, so that's cool. Okay, I get that. So So then how about Jack White? Why don't you play your your concert and then give that money to... He's protesting. Oh, okay. Yeah, so whatever. I guess I guess <laughs> for the music news this week, everybody's kind of just figuring this whole school shooting thing out and how they're going to contribute or yeah know, help out with what it, the next step is yeah yeah. Well, listen, make sure to follow, like, and subscribe to all of our social media channels. Just search for Icons and Outlaws wherever you listen to your favorite podcast and connect with your favorite people. Listen, that was the Beatles, and I know that I took a lot and kind of. Compressed, <laughs> pushed it into one thing but truthfully if if we were to go and do like if i would have gone down the rabbit hole that i did with michael jackson it probably would have been it should be its own podcast oh, and yeah. it probably is it probably is i just wanted to get short and sweet give the high notes the low notes well you said we're also going to go through each individual and, exactly so, so uh, and eventually we'll hit each person in there we'll you know talk about ringo and you know which will be amazing and probably just have a bunch of that'd be my favorite episode <laughs> a bunch of anecdotes <laughs> it's your favorite so yep. hopefully you guys in you guys enjoyed that go and uh, make sure you check out that uh, documentary called uh i believe it's called get back but it was directed by peter jackson who okay. did lord of the rings and okay. it's on disney plus and it's totally worth watching it's three parts each part's two hours but it's it's really 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 interesting and if you're any some sort of a beatles fan you'll love it, it it's really good yeah, good. So make sure you check it out. Let us know what you think of that. And listen, we produce another amazing podcast called The Midnight Train. And if you're into unsolved true crime, the paranormal, or anything mysterious, you can la- and you can laugh at the uh, craziness of all of it. You can, uh, you know, we think you'll actually dig it. Don't forget to ask Moody about my Michael Jackson. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I have to ask him that. I want to know what he thinks about. I that. haven't didn't see him last week because he was sick. So what's he got, Sasquatch? 
Uh, he thinks he may have COVID fever yeah. again. <laughs> oh, I said the C word. Oh no. Yeah, now we're flagged. <laughs> yeah, we're flagged now. He's yeah, got so COVID again. He thinks he's of course not going to go get checked. So yeah, yeah, whatever. Mm. So you can find links to that and all of the other great content we're putting out over accidentaldads.com, our centralized network hub. All right. Lastly, please consider supporting both shows by signing up to be a Patreon producer over at patreon.com forward slash accidental dads. Uh, whereas for little as five bucks a month, you'll get bonus episodes, exclusive content, and discount codes on merchandise for both shows. Don't forget to go on to Spotify and sign up or anywhere you listen to our playlists over there. Yes. Because we add music from us that we're um, we're covering, which we did let it be for this one. And yep. I'm pretty proud of that one. That's good. It turned out pretty awesome. And then uh, we are also going to add what we believe is uh, our favorite songs from them on that playlist you can also get ahead of the game mm-hmm. and hear future episode or figure out future episodes we're doing because there's some songs that are up there a little early yeah there so were wanna, there are right now if you want to yeah. get like I actually the underground like yeah. leader you know like hey i know what they're doing next and also too what i think we're going to start doing is every time we release one of those uh, or at least get it ready for release i'm going to send it over to our bonus uh people our patreon there you go let them listen to it you know, ahead of everybody else yeah i think it'd be kind of cool because like i just we just did the one yesterday which do you want to say what it is yeah we can yeah yeah it's not alanis morissette <laughs> no in fact it's actually uh cindy lopper's uh time after time yeah and it turned out pretty cool yeah it i sang, the, really I sang the whole thing yeah i think it did pretty good yeah good job yeah, <laughs> that was awesome i was really impressed and so, also do like some reactions i know some of you are pretty savvy out there and do tiktoks and, yeah. and videos on facebook do they yeah, talk play to? our song and like give us a review and post it on our page yeah yeah, absolutely. Like tag you us, know? even if you think it sucks. Yeah, be like, I would have played the drums like this. Sorry, guys. Or you know, <laughs> I really, re- really did wish Logan sang this part. You know, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. You're gonna make your daughter do it. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. I wish my daddy sang this instead. <laughs> so yeah, sign up to be a Patreon producer. Get on our Spotify. Get onto all the social medias because we are all over the places. So look up icons and outlaws. We are all over the place, and we've got a lot of great stuff coming up. Um, I mean. Yeah, we've got Cindy Lauper coming. We've got uh, Journey, Journey coming. We've Stevie got Nicks. Stevie Nicks coming. We've got Lincoln Park coming. We've got so many amazing artists. So make sure you are following us. Like, subscribe, tell your friends, get into the music. Let us know what you think. Tag us on everything. Right? Request something. If there's yeah. an artist that you really want to hear, can we'll I re- do it. Can I request something? No, you can't. Oh damn. Now, now, question for you: If we had, let's say, a hundred people request Alanis Morissette, yeah, are you cool with that? As long as I can sing the cover. <laughs> oh, no. Hey, so. guy. <laughs> yeah. All right. So thanks <laughs> so much for listening to our episode on the Beatles and in the immortal words of John Lennon, all you need is love. In times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Let it be.
Hey there, listener. We hope you enjoyed our song. And remember, you can listen to it anytime you want to on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to your favorite music. Just look up Icons and Outlaws. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.